When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are talking to Dr. Liz Faber about the road to full time. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about how you landed your dream job. But before we get there, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. So I am now an assistant professor of English and Communication at Dean College starting this fall. I have a PhD in Mass Communication and Media Arts, and I study representations of artificial intelligence in science fiction. Um, and computer history and gender studies and American media, um, a whole bunch of fun things. Um, So basically, I just do a lot of nerd stuff. Um, And outside of academia, I do more nerd stuff. (laughs) The thing about studying media is it just is every part of your life. So I spend a lot of time watching television. Um, And I also recently started making clothes. So that's my new fun thing as well. And so I found you actually on social media Mm -hmm. and you were posting that you had gotten uh, your dream job and you posted sort of a thread about the long path. So if you could take us back to the beginning of the path and your own beginnings in academia, um, how did you decide on what you wanted to study and, and did you have a more traditional path where you went straight from the bachelor's into a PhD program or what did your path look like when you were a student? Absolutely. So when I started undergraduate, I went to West Virginia University um, and I started as a forensic science major and wanted to go to medical school and be a forensic pathologist. As it turned out, I'm not great at science. So um, I was not doing well in chemistry or biology, but I absolutely fell in love with my first year English course. So At the end of my second semester, I decided to change majors over to English. Um, And at that point, I just knew what I wanted to do was teach English. So I also minored in Russian. And for a while, I thought I was going to do comparative literature. Um, I wound up doing my master's in English at West Virginia University as well. And I started teaching writing while I was there. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a full semester of composition pedagogy training Um, And so I was trained really well to be a teacher, and I really fell in love with being in the classroom and helping students learn how to write and to to communicate their ideas better. Um, And then by the end of my master's, I realized I didn't want to do comparative literature. Everything I was doing was centered around film. And I also didn't want to take the GRE subject test for English because I had bombed the GREs. Um, But I got a perfect score on the writing portion, which I think is how I managed to get into graduate school. Um, So I decided instead of 
pursuing a PhD in English, I would do my PhD in mass communication. Um, so that's how I wound up at Southern Illinois University for a PhD. And at this point, I have gone straight through. I was 24 years old when I started my PhD. I was a baby. Um, and I just jumped right into it. And at the time, I thought that I wanted to study representations of the afterlife in film. That's what my master's thesis had been about. Um, but then I fell in love with Star Trek and then um, Siri for Apple on the uh, iPhone 4S was released and everything kind of clicked for me that what I wanted to study was gender and technology. And so I started looking at the history of talking computers and science fiction. Um, and that really became my PhD journey from there. Um, so I still wanted to be a professor though. Um, and that was always my goal was to be in the classroom. And of course, by the time I graduated, it was 2013. And by then the academic job market had really taken a big downturn. Um, so I didn't get a job, um, but I still, you know, I wanted that, that dream. Um, should I keep going? I can just keep talking from <laughs> where it goes after graduate school. Yeah, I mean that was my next question was you've you've graduated, you've chosen this path deliberately because back when you were, you know, a freshman and sophomore, you were like, wow, these English professors, this is what I this is where I want to follow. This is what I want to do. I want to be in academia and, and teach. And so you've been studying pedagogy and you've been really putting together what your passion is, and the job market is awful. So you, now you're looking around and it's not throw out all your applications and get your dream job. So what happens? Yeah. So I um, finished my PhD in four years. I was about to lose my funding and my dissertation director was leaving the university to, she had taken a job at a different university across the country. And my partner at the time was going off to start his PhD at uh, Stony Brook in New York. So I was in Illinois. Um, so all of these things sort of converged and I didn't have a job and I was like, okay, I will just hurry up and defend. And I did successfully. Um, and then I followed my partner to New York and the only job that I could get was as a low level manager at Sears. So I worked at Sears for five months and it was devastating. It was so difficult. And not even just that like, I had a PhD and was working at Sears. Like that happens, that's fine. It was that all this stuff that I had worked for for so long felt like I had wasted it, that I had potential and that I threw it out because I couldn't get a job, which of course, looking back on it now is not true. The job market is terrible. There are not enough jobs for the number of PhDs that are graduating every year. So it's, it's actually fine. Um, but the feeling at the time was that that was it for me, that I had blown my chance and that I was not going to be able to get back in. And I didn't write anything that year. I, I mean, I applied for jobs um, and in academia um, and I got nothing <laughs> um, for a while, um, not even an interview. I mean, I, I hear stories from colleagues that are like, well, I 
that first year on the job market, I got three interviews and one was on site, but no offers. I had nothing, absolutely no interviews, nothing. Um, so I worked at Sears and then I went home crying every single day and it was awful. So I quit. Um, and then, uh, my partner was very supportive about that. Um, and you know, we were broke and living on Long Island and we decided we would make it work. And so then I took a temp job as a receptionist in a doctor's office. And honestly, it was a wonderful job. And I loved all of my coworkers. They were very kind. And they, I had a boss who was a woman and understood what I was going through and why this was difficult for me. And so she would give me extra tasks. Like she knew I loved to write. So she asked me to write a training manual for the position that I was in. And I absolutely loved it. It was so much fun and it made the job worthwhile for me. Um, And at the end of that year, I had applied for a ton of jobs and the only nibbles that I got, I got one email from a, the head of a writing center at a college literally saying, is this a joke to my application? Um, And the other one I got was an interview offer. um, And that was for an adjunct position at Manhattanville College. Um, And that I got the job. Um, At that point, then um, I left my temp job and my partner decided that he wanted to transfer to Louisiana State University to continue pursuing his PhD. He wasn't happy with his program at Stony Brook. It just, they didn't have the research track that he wanted. Um, So I chose to stay with my job in New York and let him go. Um, And I moved into a terrible mouse infested apartment in the Catskills with a one and a half hour one-way drive to campus um, because that was all I could afford. Um, If you've never lived in New York, It is among the most expensive places in the world to live. Um, And and I didn't want to have a roommate. So I chose to just go live in the middle of nowhere and have a very long commute so that I could just adjunct. I got very, very lucky that first year. Um, I was able to pick up enough classes at one school. Um, I taught a 5-5 load, which is an outrageous number. It was more than full-time faculty were obligated to teach. Um, But I did it because that was what let me live and eat and pay rent. Um, And then I still kind of felt like my career wasn't going anywhere. Like I was getting to teach and I was really happy and I loved everything about Manhattanville and my students and it was wonderful. But also I was part time. And at Manhattanville, um, at the time, writing faculty also weren't considered faculty. They were considered staff. So there were a lot of inequities that really made me feel still like I wasn't quite in academia yet. So I wasn't writing. I wasn't publishing. I wasn't, I was teaching, but I wasn't faculty. So after that first year, um, they, one of the full-time people in my department resigned, decided to go off to law school, which was awesome. Um, And at that point, there were only two of us adjuncts in the department and the other one had gotten sick and resigned. Um, So I was the only adjunct left. And so they promoted me to full-time. 
Um, and, and I had a full-time job. It was a teaching job, although it was a staff position. Um, that summer, I worked in a grocery store because I didn't make enough money um, throughout the year to be able to make it through the summer. Um, so I, I did. I was a cashier in a grocery store with a PhD um, and technically with a full-time job as an academic, but it, I didn't get my first paycheck as full-time until like September of that year. Um, and I thought that I was finally on the right track at that point. I was teaching full-time. It was what I wanted to do. And I finally started to think about writing, which was great. Um, and then a year later, um, my director passed away suddenly. And that sort of sent the department into complete turmoil. Um, the person who had been running the tutoring center sort of stepped up into the director position and asked me to be the tutoring coordinator. So to run all of the tutoring services, um, kind of do day-to-day operations. And I was like, sure, I'm not doing anything with my life. Um, and it was more money. So I became an administrator and it wasn't ever what I wanted. It wasn't ever my dream. Um, but I had the skill set that I needed for it. I, could do administration really well. So I did that for three years and pretty much hated every second of it. Um, it was a struggle and I, I always taught overloads and overworked myself and I taught I, I worked 14 hour days for three years because I insisted on teaching at least four classes every semester on top of being a full-time administrator and it was too much. Um, but it was pursuing what I wanted. So at that point, I was making $40,000 as an instructor and an extra $10,000 as um, an administrator. So $50,000 with a PhD. And at that point, I had almost 10 years of teaching experience. And that's, you're doing two full-time jobs to, to make that money. Exactly, exactly. So that is the exploitation of academia. And I want to be very clear that I am not trying to throw that particular institution under the bus. This is across the board, something that exists, particularly for people in the humanities and particularly for people who teach writing, that our skills, because all of us in academia are writers, often we overlook the fact that writing studies is its own discipline. And so writing instructors tend to be treated as staff or as consultants, or our classes are thought of as something that anyone can teach, no matter what they actually study, Um, which is not true. We have very specialized training, but it, it is in large part how we wind up underpaid and overworked in our discipline. Um, So yeah, so I did that for multiple years. Um, I, were you still living up in the Catskills? Were you doing this on top of the commute, oh, or did you reach a point where you can move closer to Manhattanville? Because it's in—is it in White Plains? Yes, yeah. Which is a a nice area, but like many many colleges, they're in nice areas, meaning the people who work there are unlikely to be able to afford to live near there. Correct. Yeah. So I was able to move a little bit closer. Um, I moved to the Poughkeepsie area at that point, which was about an hour away. So it wasn't terrible, 
Um, and, and for the New York area, that's pretty common, that kind of a commute. Um, and, and I was lucky that most of my colleagues lived in New York City and so fought city traffic every day. And for me, I was up in the suburbs, so it was, it was a little bit easier. Um, but it was still, it was a lot of driving. If everybody's commuting, at least when you're having the struggles to get there on time or, or things are out of your control, there's a culture at least there that understands that it was out of your control. Yes, very much so. Um, and I was, for as many terrible things as there were in that job, I am eternally grateful to my supervisor there, uh, my director, Carly Brower, who always took care of her people and always made sure that we weren't overextending ourselves and that our schedule would fit our needs, um, particularly our commuting needs. Um, some of us had uh, childcare duties that we had to attend to. So she was always very, very receptive to that. Um, and I give her a lot of credit for that kind of leadership. Um, I think that that's often missing in higher ed, but there are really wonderful pockets. And and honestly, part of why I stayed for so long was partially because the job market is still terrible. Bear in mind, I was literally applying for jobs every single year this whole time um, and getting nothing, no interviews. Um, but I stayed because my director and my colleagues and the students made it worthwhile. Um, the pay was a problem, though, and, and constantly feeling undervalued was a problem. And were you feeling undervalued because of the, the terrible pay, because of the precariousness of your position? Or was there a culture outside the writing department that was bringing that to bear? Because it sounds like your direct co-workers and your direct supervisors were lovely. They're part of why you kept staying. Mm-hmm. Yes, it so it was both, well, I guess all three things, really. There was a larger culture, and I've seen this at a number of institutions now, where tenure, well, this is true in all of academia, right? Tenure is the end-all, be-all, once you get it, you are everybody kind of thing. Non-tenure track folks are therefore considered failures in many people's eyes, and in order to get a tenure track job, you have to continue to do research. But in order to do research, you have to have the funding of a tenure track job. So there's a constant cycle of you're not good enough to be an academic, but we expect you to do all of the work of an academic for free with no funding. Good luck. Um, and then you add on to that being underpaid. The people in my division, in my department, were the lowest paid people at the college even lower than other people of the same rank. So we had the rank of lecturer and we made about $10,000 less than other lecturers at the college. Um, and that's be, we were told it was because we were writing faculty that that's just how, that was our market value. Um, and that again, is not particular to that institution. That is true across most institutions where the folks who teach the gen ed courses, the things that are seen as stuff anybody can do, those are the least valued. And, and so literally we were undervalued in our work in a bunch of different ways. Having been in that, do you have for the listeners suggestions for how we can be advocates for change? Where, where does the change 
need to happen at what level? All levels. Um, change was happening slowly at Manhattanville. Um, we did get faculty status at a certain point, and that is in large part because of changeover in upper administration, where they finally started to listen to us and to take us seriously. Um, and there's no union at that school. Um, many private schools are not unionized, so that's important to keep in mind as well. Um, so we had to advocate for ourselves too. And I think there will not always be upper administration who is ready to listen to you. So the other important thing is to rock the boat. I spent many years being terrified that I was gonna be fired because we worked on annual contracts. We didn't have job security. Um, and technically our jobs were dependent on enrollment. So if enrollment went down, we could be let go. Um, and that's terrifying. That's a very scary way to exist when you are also the lowest paid people and undervalued anyway. So my other piece of advice is if you are in that position, which I know a majority of us in academia are, push back. Don't be afraid to push back because if that means you're laid off, that means that they were never going to listen to you and they were never going to create the change that needs to happen. If you push back and someone listens and says, hey, you're right, let's start making tangible changes, stay and try to get that to happen. It sounds like speaking out is one of the most important things contingent faculty can be doing that there's this open secret uh, in academia and for people sort of adjacent to academia, including the parents who in many cases are, or grandparents who are helping pay tuition for their loved one to, to attend, they have no idea of um, that, you know, some of us are, are paid the equivalent of um, the person who made your coffee. Yes. Um, and at many institutions, particularly private institutions, employees are forbidden from talking to one another about their, or, or talking publicly with one another about their salaries. Um, there was a point at Manhattanville when salaries were distributed um, to faculty, just and it was very transparent. And in fact, some cases of inequities were caught through that. And that's, that's the purpose of sharing salaries. That's why many public institutions also share salaries publicly um, to ensure that inequity across rank isn't happening. But when that transparency doesn't exist, that's the problem. So that's the other thing that people in tenure track and tenured positions can do is talk openly about salaries and to stand up for the people who are in the lowest salaries because they are more likely to lose out <laughs> or be overlooked, right? The, the people with the highest salaries are also the loudest voices. So you were there for a while, and did you transition from there to your current job, or what was the next, next step no. on this winding so path? <laughs> yeah, there were a couple more steps on the path. So I um, decided after three years as the tutoring coordinator that I was exhausted and that I didn't want to do administration in that format anymore. So I stepped down from that role and stayed on as a full-time lecturer. Um, and I taught a full load of courses. 
I also, because then I, I took a pay cut because I wasn't doing administration as well. Um, at that point, I took a position as an adjunct at Duchess Community College, um, and they were amazing. They valued every single person in the department. Um, my division chair literally went to the college and tried to get them to give me a full-time job um, after they had a couple of folks retire. Um, unfortunately, the college said no because of money concerns. Um, but working there as an adjunct made me feel valued and made me realize the value of my work. So at that point, I decided it was time to focus on publishing and on getting the job that I want. So I started working on my on turning my dissertation into a book. Um, I managed to get a contract um, that this the book part of it is sort of. I feel like I just kind of fell into that part of the journey. Most people network with an editor, usually at a conference, and sort of build up that professional relationship first. I just wrote a proposal and cold sent it out. Um, and the first person said, no, but it's wonderful. And it here are some presses where it might fit. And I picked out the top one in that list, uh, the, the most prestigious in that list, which was University of Minnesota Press, and sent my proposal there. And they loved it. And um, then I got a contract. And so I was working on a book and doing a full-time job and doing a part-time job and commuting a lot. Um, at this point, I was commuting from where I lived to Manhattanville for an hour. And then I would, I taught night classes at Duchess. So I would commute from Manhattanville to Duchess, which was an hour and a half, teach until 9.30 at night, and then drive half an hour home, fall onto the couch, <laughs> sit with my cat for a little while until my brain calmed down and fall asleep. And then get up the next day and do the same thing all over again. And it was exhausting but I could finally see myself getting closer to where I wanted to be. And then the pandemic happened and really mucked up a lot of things for everybody, um, obviously. And I, so when the pandemic started, I was working the two jobs and I had applied for a ton of jobs. Um, so I started to get interviews which is really exciting. Um, I had more interviews that year than ever before in my life. And I honestly think that the ability to do virtual interviews during the pandemic really helped. Um, so I had four interviews that year. Um, and I wound up, I had applied for a position as an English faculty at Library College of Healthcare. Um, they hired somebody else who turned out to be a wonderful fit for the school, but they asked me to interview for the chair of the division of arts and sciences position instead, which was full-time administration. Um, you could teach a couple of classes if you wanted to, but the, the main bulk of the work was administration for the division. Um, and I got the job. And so I left my teaching position uh, both of them. <laughs> and I went to work. Um, oh, actually, let me backtrack. I should mention, 
I, I had actually resigned from Manhattanville before I even was offered the full-time job at Labore. So I worked up the courage and decided I can't continue to do this. I'm done. So I resigned and then thankfully got the job offer at Labore. Um, and that was a wonderful opportunity. I really, I spent a whole year working remotely. Um, I got to kind of flex my administrative skills and I worked with an amazing bunch of faculty there um, and was able to, in the span of a year, accomplish quite a number of things at the college, quite a number of initiatives at the college that I'm very proud of, um, including implementing things for multilingual learners, um, working on the learner success lab there, um, implementing some new processes for the division. Like it, it, it was a good job but it wasn't my dream job. And so after a semester, I went back on the job market again. And this is like eight years on the job market at this point. <laughs> um, and I, so that's this year. I had a number of interviews, um, all of them virtual, which again, that's the, the one silver lining of academia in the pandemic is that being able to do virtual interviews has made the process so much more accessible. And I think that committees are able to look at applicants that they couldn't look at before um, just because of, of literally geographical issues. Um, and so I had four rounds of interviews with Dean College, and they hired me to be the assistant professor of English and communication and work particularly with students in the Arch Learning Center, which are all neurodivergent students. Um, this is one area of teaching that I'm incredibly passionate about is universal design in working with students with disabilities and helping them build the tool set that they need to be successful and to be who they are in the workforce rather than trying to mask who they are to fit in, but to, to find ways to work with their natural abilities and, and make it work for them in life and in the workforce. So that's where I am now. It was a really long and windy journey. <laughs> and that job required an actual physical move. When you when you stopped working at Manhattanville and you took the, the admin job for the as to be the chair of the department, you were actually administrating a department that was in another state. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And but and you, so it went virtually. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Well but and all of the gen ed courses at Labore are online anyway. It's an online program. So my faculty were all over the country. So it, it was much easier. It happened. This is one of those other things that I very much feel like I just sort of lucked out and fell into the right place at the right time. I was in a moment in my life where I was ready to move. I was ready for a big change. Um, my beloved cat actually passed away in April. Um, on the same day as my final interview at Dean College. And that sort of felt like the end of one chapter and the start of another for me. And so I do acknowledge that this is not a thing that a lot of people in academia can do. Um, I am somewhat geographically bound in that I don't wanna to be too far from my family on the East Coast of the US. Um, but I also, I don't have a spouse and I don't have children. So it's easier for me to pick up and move. Um, I am 
also incredibly grateful for Dean that they offered me a very generous relocation stipend. So that made the move possible for me. That you still had to move during a pandemic, which is a <laughs> level of logistics that um, I think confounds most people if they just even want to rent a beach house for a week during the pandemic. They're like, I think this is a safe thing to do, but I don't know how to put all the pieces together. And you have to move from one state to another, take everything you have with you. And so talk to us about what worries you had, how that came about. Yeah. Um, I am very grateful for vaccines. (laughs) I will say that I got vaccinated and I was like, great, now I'm ready. I can do this. It is much less terrifying to be trying to move. Um, I think the biggest, scariest thing was the end of one insurance policy and the start of another. Um, because in the U.S., our insurance, our, our health care is tied to our employment status. Um, but I, again, lucked out and the end of one job um, is going to transition seamlessly into the next one. So I won't lose health care coverage. Um, but it, it, it was very frightening packing up all my things. And um, I did a U-Haul. I did a lot of the move myself, um, by myself, because I didn't want... Um, to have as many people involved in it just because of COVID. Um, I also had to take my apartment without having seen it, which was very nerve wracking. Um, But I looked at a lot of pictures and I watched a video and I came up and and drove around the neighborhood to make sure it felt safe. Um, But yeah, it was, it was a big move. Uh, (laughs) And honestly, not, not, the weirdest move. I think moving from Illinois to New York with no job yet after a PhD was probably the bravest thing I've ever done. Um, so this one, this one was scary, but not as scary as not having a job. There's a lot of uprooting that academics are expected to do. We're expected to uproot to go to our college and then uproot again to go to our master's program. You you did your master's where you you were at college, but for a lot of people, it's it's another move. Uh, and then a move to the PhD program. If you do a postdoc, that's a move. If you do a fellowship, that's a move. Um, and then because so much of academia is, is uh, contingent faculty and staff, the numbers change depending on which report you read, but as much as 75%, perhaps more, of the jobs are short-term jobs. So there's a lot, a lot of moving. And one thing that that comes to mind is what this does to friendships in our adult life. Can you talk a bit about moving to a strange place and kind of getting there and being like, I don't actually know anybody here? Yeah. Um, So I was, again, I consider myself very lucky. I grew up in Southern Illinois. So when I went to do the PhD at Southern Illinois University, I was going home and my family wasn't there anymore, but all of my best friends were still there. And um, so for me, that transition was much easier. Um, moving places where I don't know anyone was extraordinarily difficult. I think that was part of what contributed to me being so miserable the year after my PhD was I, I mean, I moved there with my partner, my best friend. So I knew him, but I knew nobody else. I never made friends there. Um, and I, I had work colleagues, but never really anybody else. And I will say people make fun 
of social media. And certainly there are some terrible aspects to social media, but Twitter has literally saved my life that the group of academics and friends that I've made there makes this so much less terrifying because I get to take my friends with me no matter where I go. And, And that sounds so weird, but genuinely I have some of the best friends I've ever had in my life and they live all over the world and we talk every day online and it makes this feel a lot less lonely. And I also know that most of them are academics and they get what I'm going through. So I think finding your people doesn't have to be in the geographic location where you are. We can be there for each other, even across the world. And it sounds like you've made some parameters for yourself. You talked about when you were on the job market, there were family reasons why you weren't going to leave the East Coast. So you have also made some parameters for yourself physically about what you need in order to support you emotionally so that you can do your intellectual work. Yes, absolutely. And I I do acknowledge that probably the job market would have been a little bit easier for me if I had been willing to move the entire way across the country. Um, And at one point I was invited to apply for a position in Florida and it was a wonderful job. And all of the people, I I knew a couple of the folks on the faculty and they were really nice. Um, But my stepmom wound up in the hospital with a cardiac problem. And right after that, I was like, nope, I need to be in driving distance of them um, because being able to see my family is really, really important. And, and I, again, acknowledge that because I don't have a spouse and I don't have children, it's easier for me to relocate than it is for people who, whose lives are physically entwined with other people. Um, but I also think that it's, it's okay to say, I'm not going to do this job, or I'm not going to take that job, or I'm going to make sacrifices in my career because I love these people and I want to be near them. And I, I think in academia, we don't value that enough. And honestly, I think a lot of that is wrapped up in the way that we think about success in higher ed. So we we think about the ranking of schools, right? So the, the best position anyone can think of, the most prestigious thing is to work at an R1 or to work at an Ivy League school, tenure track at those schools. But for a lot of us, a job at a community college is life-changing. If I could have stayed at Dutchess Community College and had a full-time position there, I would have taken it in a heartbeat. Um, because that work was exactly the work that I wanted to do. And people look down on it. And I think that's a problem, that, that we need to be eking out more space to acknowledge that as academics, we need to be living lives, right? And, and our career paths are always going to look different. This is the thing about my career path is by most standards, I am a failure, But by my standards, I got what I wanted and it took a long time and it was heartbreaking for a lot of it, but I finally got there. And I think that we need to to talk more about that. (laughs) Yes, we do. And so I want to ask you about that. How did you, um, how did you create a mindset that allowed you to go forward if the loud voices or the ones that had been ingrained were that you, you were a failure? 
and that your your resume was proof of that. And something in you said, I'm not quitting until I finish my dream, until I do what I set out to do. How do you keep fueling the dream when the voices that seem to be authoritative are saying, no, we, we regard this as failure? Honestly, I didn't do it alone. Having the job at the community college where I was able to realize the value of my work, that I have something important to contribute to higher ed, to teaching, to research. That's what made the difference for me. And I think that if I had to give a piece of advice to folks working in higher ed, it's that changing jobs is terrifying, but don't be afraid to do it. Right? Like I also left an administrative position where I was making an outrageous amount of money, but I didn't like it. And I didn't, I didn't feel fulfilled in it, even though I felt valued, but I left and I took a pay cut because I needed to go where, where I wanted my future to be. And it's okay to make those decisions. And it's also okay not to make those decisions. It's okay to stay in a job that you feel lukewarm about because you have other priorities in your life as well. If we could circle back to the community college job, um, community colleges are such a crucial part of our higher ed system. And in mentioning that I, I met you through social media, um, that's because I, I, I look at a lot of posts about higher ed and someone recently posted, I have left academia. I have taken a job at a community college. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what voice of a failure is in her head? She's still in higher ed. She's still in academia. Um, but she feels that she's left. And I thought, I'm, I'm sure she's highly gifted. They've, they've hired her, right, in a market where, as you said, there are so many applications being sent for any job that you might not even hear back um, from ones that you applied to. Um, so obviously, they selected her out of uh, you know a number of, of highly qualified candidates. But that mindset that she's taking in with her, I, I think about what it's doing to her, and I think about what it's doing to her students. And, and obviously, unintentionally, again, she was selected as the right candidate for the job. Can you talk a bit about that kind of mindset that goes through here? You loved your community college job. You would have stayed if they could have paid you. <laughs> Absolutely. I. This, again, is one of my biggest frustrations in higher ed is the way that we rank everything. And we think of we think of being an academic as being a researcher at a very important and well-funded institution, but that's not what academia is. The, the way that we contribute to the industry and the way that we contribute to the world is so much bigger than that. And community colleges themselves, I personally think, are more valuable and more important than R1 institutions because yes, R1s are producing knowledge, but community colleges are producing citizens. And that is where the devastatingly difficult work happens. That, And we saw this with, um, with Dr. Biden, right? Dr. Jill Biden, she has taught at a community college for years and years. And for someone to understand what it's like to be in the trenches of a community college, to work with students who are not just struggling to learn to write, but are struggling to lift themselves out of poverty or struggling to find 
a, a job or struggling to get out of a home situation or just like don't want to leave home yet, right? There are lots of, of 18-year-old traditional students who aren't ready to leave home. And so they go to a community college for two years, stay with their families, contribute to the local economy, and then go on to another institution and live wonderful, happy lives. But at a community college, we lay the foundation for them. And I am always angry when people look down at that. And, And I heard that for years and years and years, especially when I was doing my PhD. I mean, my PhD is from a, an R2 regional university with one of the top communication schools in the, in the world, but was not a, a top school in the country. And so even coming out of that, community college was seen as a backup plan. Like, oh, when you go there, you've failed. But it's not true. And I wish that I had understood that sooner because I wish I'd been able to start my career at one. We're talking about self-defining success and failure. And you talked earlier about the, you know, the job you had at Sears, and it wasn't that there's anything wrong with having a job at Sears. It's that it wasn't the right match for you and your goals and what you were trying to do. And we look at the long path from there to where you are now. Your, your dream job starts in, within days. You're there. You're relocated. Your apartment that you had to pick online turned out to be pretty good. You're okay. Um, And you're getting ready to work on your second book. It's really easy when we um, summarize things to just skip it all over and be like, well, I'm working on my second book and I have my dream job. And you've been really open about this long, long path to get there. One of the things I've noticed that you put on Twitter pretty much every day is you ask people what they did to take care of themselves, to be good to themselves. Yes. Can you talk about that mindset and how that mindset is part of how you got from your, you know, your first day of your freshman year to what will now be your first day at your dream job? Yeah. Um, care is something that is at the core of my existence. And the, the thing on Twitter, so every single day I say, today's self-care looked like whatever. And then I list out at least three things that I've done to be kind to myself. And I say, what did you do to be kind to yourself today? And everybody checks in every day. And I've been doing this since almost a year now. Um, it, it was it was a pandemic thing um, that I, I needed to hold myself accountable for care. Um, but even before that, compassion and care and taking time to check in with people is something that always moves me forward. And I think that that is such an enormous part of what I love about education and higher ed. And I had professors who cared very deeply about me and my well-being. And now I get to give that back to the world. And that that's the thing that always drives me forward. And that was why my weird foray into the world of Sears didn't work out for me because I don't care if someone signs up for the credit card today. I care if they're happy and I care if they're smiling and if they had a nice experience in a store, that seems lovely. Um, But I I was never cutthroat enough for metrics. So I, I really value getting to work with students who respond well to care and, and getting to instill that in them and to see them care for each other and to see that in my colleagues too. And 
that is the thing that keeps me in higher ed. When you're in sales, you have to seize that one moment as though it's never going to come around again. You have to sell them the thing right (laughs) then. And your job now where you're going to be running this center, you're going to have these students for a period of years and they will be figuring out their moment that's right for them to glom onto a new idea or to ask for the help that they need. There's, they get to have the entire process. Um, can you talk about your new job and and what that's going to look like? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things about higher ed, I keep saying one of my favorite things about higher ed. I have a lot of favorite things about it. Um, it is seeing students from first year to final year. And I can't wait for that part. I will be teaching English 111 in the fall, which is first year composition. The vast majority of my students are first semester, first year students. Um, And I will get to watch them grow up in front of me and turn into caring, thoughtful, well-educated humans. And in four years, I will get to watch them all graduate. And that is the most rewarding part. Um, And I I have students that I had at Manhattanville who I'm still in contact with and are now earning master's degrees and going on into their profession and getting to watch them start as terrified first-year students who don't know who they are and don't know what they want and to grow into themselves is so overwhelmingly rewarding. To me, it seems like the most important part of higher ed is people figuring out what they want to do with the knowledge that they're acquiring and that they're also producing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I was just having a conversation with colleagues yesterday about helping students understand the nature of knowledge production and how they participate in it. Um, And outside of traditional boundaries of research, right? We can't expect undergraduates to be publishing. That's bananas. But we can help them see how, as citizens, as friends, as members of communities, as people with families, they bring knowledge and they bring passion and they can share that knowledge in their everyday lives and and help produce something new in their careers and in their communities. It sounds like kindness is really um, one of your core values and that everyone who comes in contact with you uh, picks up on that. Um, Can you talk a bit about the role of kindness um, in the classroom? Yeah. Um, I hope everybody walks away from interactions with me feeling kindness and good. Um, When I'm in the classroom, I... I mean, my teaching style is very performative that I do acknowledge, like, I want to make my students laugh. I want to get them engaged. I want to blow their brains up every day. But I also want to take care of them. And I want to make sure that they know that I value their existence just because they exist. And I tell my students that regularly, um, that I'm happy they're there, that I'm proud of them. And genuinely, I am. I have never had students, I mean, I've had students who struggle and students I get frustrated with, but I am always proud of my students and I always tell them that out loud. And 
I can see them start to do that with each other. And that is the core part of my pedagogy is not just getting students to learn the skills that they need, but getting them to learn that they can use their skills to make things around them better, not just to make themselves better. So many students were told that they were competing for their spot at college, and that they had to be competitive. They had to look competitive. And when you finally have them at college, trying to explain that they can be collegiate in, in that definition of the word, um, that you, you spoke earlier about finding your people, whether your people are geographically there or your people are um, connected online with you. You need to find your people and ways to find your people um, often are through kindness <laughs> and not through competition. Um, it sounds like that's something that you're trying to help your students understand either uh, explicitly or through osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and teaching writing and communication, that's really the heart of everything we do in those disciplines to think about not just am I saying the right thing at the right time in the right modality, but how do I help someone else think about the way that they're communicating? Um, That's my approach to peer review as well in my research life and in my teaching life is when you read somebody else's work or when you listen to them give a speech or when you watch their film or whatever you're doing with them, your job is to help them find the best parts of their voice and amplify it. And so when you listen or watch or read, what you're looking for is the best parts and to be able to articulate how to do more of that to the other person. And so I I think my discipline really kind of works well for my personality and my goals in life and that it, it is all about how do we collaborate better? How do we work together better? Um, And how do we communicate kindness and kindly with one another? What do you hope this conversation sparks? I hope two things. One, I hope that there is someone out there who feels exploited and is like, you know what? Not going to take it anymore. And goes and finds the thing that makes them feel valued and pursues it. And I hope the other thing is that everybody goes and does something kind for themselves today. Those are wonderful things for listeners to take away. Dr. Liz Faber, thank you so much for being on the show with us today and telling us about your long road to your dream job. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You're welcome. And this is The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please. Join us again.